Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey there, friends. This is Jeffrey Rickman, the pastor of the No Water Methodist Church, and you are listening to our podcast, and I'm glad you are, because this is a pretty nice podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. We uh, do special segments sometimes, but this and most of our podcasts are just our Sunday morning proclamation of the Word, and we go by the Revised Common Lectionary readings, and some weeks they all hold together very well. Other weeks they're kind of all over the place. Uh, this last Sunday, we had a uh, reading from Isaiah and a reading from Luke that overlapped in the theme of being fearful in the presence of the holy. Isaiah is transported to God's heavenly temple, and then Simon Peter is in the presence of Jesus for the first time. Both of them show a respectful and fearful response to the divine, and so we talked a bit about what that means. We also had a reading from 1 Corinthians in which Paul talks about the nature of the gospel, and he covers the logistical details of Jesus' life. And so we talk about the importance of knowing the story and loving the story. But all of these readings really circle around the importance of being able to speak about our faith and act on our faith in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And um, this this presupposition that a lot of people have that God is okay having just spectators, but the reality is that this is a contact sport that we're all called to play. Um, that's a metaphor. Anyway, um, I, I hope you enjoyed these reflections. I hope um, you continue to pray for this church. This is a small rural church in a town that hardly anybody knows about, but we're talking about the most meaningful things in the world, and we have a lovely community here that I, I love serving. So, I hope your spirit is drawn together with ours and just reflecting upon how wonderful and good our God is and how precious the sacrifice of uh, Christ Jesus on the cross is and just how wonderful our life is lived in response to that. So may God bless you as you meditate on these meaningful things with us. Glad to have you all with us. We're going to attend upon God's holy word now. Our first reading is from Isaiah. And in the setup to this reading... We have, in some senses, the same faith as the Jews. The whole Old Testament that we have is the Hebrew Bible, uh, and we don't have any different texts from them. We believe in the exact same God that they believe in. It's just that they disagree that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the New Testament. That's a, that is a worthy disagreement for us to maintain against. You know, we, we respectfully disagree with the Jews and believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. But everything in the Old Testament is real. Everything is, is true, and the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. There are a lot of people today who say, oh, that God of the Old Testament, he's vengeful and wrathful and he's so mean, and the God of the New Testament is so nice and loving and caring and forgiving. And that's a good way to tell that this is a person who has not read their Bible. If you know someone who said that they have not read their Bible, or they've read it with 
crazy rose-tinted glasses on. I don't know how to explain it because if you just read the Gospel of Matthew, that God is the same God of the Old Testament. If you look at Revelation, that God is about as wrathful as you'd expect from the prophet Amos, okay? It's the same God. And the same cosmological framework. Jesus believed in angels and demons, didn't he? He talked about both. He believed in spiritual forces of wicked around us. He believed that the Jews had the promises of the kingdom, and he came as the fulfillment of the promises of the Jews. One of the things that was core and key to the Jewish faith was the temple. It's one of the things we don't talk about anymore because the temple was destroyed, and in Jerusalem, where it once stood, is now a mosque, and that's a, a source of great issue for people. But the temple was the center of Jewish religious life for hundreds of years. It's what they built to reflect a heavenly temple that the Bible talks about at a couple different points. And we're about to read a, a point where the heavenly temple is described. Isaiah is transported to the heavenly temple to see God himself seated upon his throne. It's in a mystical state. We're going to hear about his reaction to that. But I wanted us stepping in the feet of Jews who heard this for the first time or the second time or the third time. They lived in an era where the temple was still built and they could go inside it and there, had a, there was a floor plan and they believed that that temple reflected exactly the heavenly temple that God himself was in. And so Isaiah is walking into this physical space or transported there. And as he's in the temple, he sees God himself and his holy retinue and all around him. It is a beatific, amazing vision that he was blessed to have and then share with us. But we'll come back together after the reading and decide, is this a good news reading or is this a, a bad news reading? And that might be a, a false way of, you know, the whole Bible is good news. But um, anyway, we'll talk about it in a minute. I'd welcome our first reader to come forward is from the prophet Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 13 which you can find on page 1069 of your pre-U Bibles. Listen to the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim each with six wings with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, Hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. 
Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We know from later passages in the Bible that of that stump that God made of God's holy people, a shoot sprung forth of the tribe of Jesse, and that was Jesus who uh, would fulfill the kingdom. And that's a good news portion. However, this prophecy that the Lord gives Isaiah is not a good news portion. It's bad news. And it's in response to a couple bad centuries. You know, remember that God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. He gave them a land that was not their own. They got to inhabit cities and vineyards that were not their own so that they would be in faithful covenant with God and serve him alone. But they, choose to take, they chose to take those blessings and, and instead serve the other gods of the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Amorites, the Moabites. They were not faithful in their covenant with God and they were not faithful in their pursuit of justice. They oppressed the widow and the poor and the needy, the orphan and the distressed. They were corrupt, as bad as non-Jews. And because of that, God eventually grew tired of their sin. He would send them prophets to warn them. He would send them curses to wake them up. And even so, they, they wouldn't wake up for long. They would go back to sleep. They would go back to their sins. So God was tired of it. And we learned that he calls Isaiah to his holy presence to commission him on a mission to the Israelites where he will be telling them the truth. And they will hear it, but they will not understand and they will see these sign acts that he does. They will see the truth of what he says, and yet they will not perceive it. And because of that, they will not be able to repent and turn and walk in righteousness. Rather, they will have God's wrath poured out on them, such that they will be dispossessed of the land that God gave them and thrown to the outer reaches of the world. And of course, all this happened, and Isaiah was there. That's what the rest of Isaiah is, is Isaiah telling them God's truth as it's happening, telling them why God is angry, and indeed, they don't receive it. They don't like it. They don't listen. They continue to curse God. They continue to curse Isaiah. It's, a, it's by God's grace that he survived. But God brought about this destruction on the people because God is just. I love this reading because it's just an amazing portrait of God's heavenly temple. I can't imagine what it would be like to be, you know, just earthly palaces are amazing, right? Has anyone ever been inside a cathedral or a, a large castle, these huge ornate rooms that are designed. And then you know, one of the ways that I actually, I watched this very ungodly show called Marco Polo on uh, Netflix, but it had uh, the court of Kublai Khan represented, this amazing, beautiful palace that he lived within, and he had a holy retinue all around him, and he was attended upon by people from all over the, the world. It was, it's just a beautiful picture, and that's a worldly setting. I can't imagine the beauty of this heavenly setting where God's train, y'all know what a train is? We're not talking about the train that drives through no water. It's a, usually we talk about it in the, like a, a wedding. A bride will have her train dragging behind her. That's part of the dress, but it says that God is wearing a robe and his robe's train fills the whole temple. It's quite a garment. And then he's got these seraphim 
all around him. These are angelic heavenly beings. They have three sets of wings. One covers their face from the glory of the Lord. One covers their feet. And in Hebrew, feet often means the genitals. So odds are that's the right reading where they're just covering up their private parts so that they're not showing their private parts in the middle of God's temple because that would be weird. And then the other set is flying. And they're singing this song, holy, holy, holy which, of course, we see reflected in Revelation, and then we have our own hymn, Holy, 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 that we sing. This is ancient. This goes back to the earliest biblical witness. So we get this wonderful vision, and then what is Isaiah's response? He's transported there. Does he walk up and high-five God? There are a lot of people, they're so informal in their faith, they really think that whenever they cross over to the other side and they see Jesus, they'll say, ah, oh, put her there, Jesus. Oh, good to see you. Oh, I'm just so happy to see you. You know what? Bring it in for a hug, Jesus, you know? That is not the biblical picture that we get. Isaiah's response to being in God's presence is, woe to me. I am in trouble. I am an unclean man with unclean lips, and I come from a people with unclean lips. I am a goner. How many people know to fear the Lord like that? Was he wrong to fear the Lord like that? No. He was not wrong to fear the Lord like that. The Lord acknowledges, yeah, you're in trouble, but we're going to do something for you. He has a seraph grab a hot coal. Y'all know what a hot coal is? You ever had a fire? It's burning, blazing hot, and it brings it over and puts it to Isaiah's lips. How do you think that felt? I bet that felt awful. I would hate for that to happen to me. But what happens out of that is so great, he doesn't even talk about the pain. He says that his mouth was purified. He was made worthy to be a messenger of God. All of his sins were atoned for. And so when God then says, we've got a holy mission to go on, who, will, who can we send Isaiah knows that the Lord has purified him. He says, here I am, send me. Can you imagine? We're going to be talking about humility here in a little bit. A lot of people look at that and say, oh, he was so prideful. No, he wasn't. Just before that, he was going, I deserve to die because of how sinful I am. He was humble, but he knew God's power working in him. And he said, I know I've been called to this task. So he said, here I am, send me. And so God says, okay, here's the mission you're going to go on. You're going to go and tell truth to these people, and they're not going to listen. You're going to say all the right words. They are not going to understand what you're saying. They're going to hate you for it. And in the end, everybody you're witnessing to is going to die. Why would, Jesus, why would God make a mission like this? There are two opposing schools of thought within the Christian church around God's sovereignty. And they're on two sides of a continuum. One is God is sovereign, and we have no free will. So there's that. And then the other is uh, God is sovereign, but we also all still have free will and we can decide to be saved and we can decide to be damned. And both of these are problematic because the Bible presents kind of a middle view. God is sovereign. He's in control of history, but also we get to participate in our own salvation or damnation. God works our salvation and he probably works our damnation. And that's what you see in this right here. He's saying, I'm going to work the damnation of this nation. I'm angry. And that's really hard for us because we come from this side over here saying free will, God doesn't condemn anybody. But the biblical witnesses, yeah, God does. He does condemn people. And the reason we don't like that is because why? Oh, everybody likes that? Everybody feels good about that? We love other people. Why would we rejoice in their condemnation? Why would we rejoice in other people's condemnation? I heard some mumbling. I don't know who said it. Let me, let me venture a guess. Because God is glorified in it. 
that no matter who is saved, no matter who is condemned, no matter how this world goes, in everything God is glorified. And it might be ugly to our eyes and it might feel wrong to our spirits. However, I am not God. And there are certain things that I look at and go, that was kind of mean, God. You, should, you, didn't, you didn't need to do that. God help me. There are some times that I think I know better than God. Anybody else here guilty of that sin? Shame on you. But that's what we all do. We all have these consciences, and they speak so loudly, and we go, oh, that doesn't make sense. You didn't have to do that, God. Oh, you don't, people don't have to be condemned. You don't have to pour out your wrath on anybody. But then we open our Bibles, and they tell us a very different story. And one of the things that, you know, if I were a better preacher, I would, I would put this to you all more often than I do. But, guys, what are you going to do if God does things in a way you don't like? Seriously. I think we all imagine that God does things the way that we like. And we go, oh, I know that's in the Bible, but, you know, God, he's not going to do that. And yeah, my God couldn't do that. Well, that's the problem. You might have a God that's not the one you find in the Bible. What do we call a God that is not found in the Bible? That's an idol. We don't want to be idolaters. But if we're following a God that does not resemble who we find in the Bible, then we are idolaters. My challenge in life is not to conform God to my image and what I think is right. My job is to be conformed to the pattern of Christ. And that means there are some ways that it is not going to feel right with my spirit. And I'm going to come to Jesus and I'm going to say, oh, Jesus, this is really hard for me. And he's going to say, get over it, man. He's not going to say, man, he's not formal. He's going to say, oh, man, get over it. And I need to hear that sometimes, y'all. I have a way of remaking God in my image and making it feel like a buddy. He is not my buddy. He is a God who is to be feared. And we have the story of Isaiah here. We have the story of Simon Peter later when he's in the presence of Jesus. He says, oh, Lord, get away from me. I'm an unholy man. Please, I can't take this. And we need to reckon with that God before we meet him face to face and it's too late. And that's what we're doing here. It's worth noting at the end, God gives Isaiah to go and speak to these people who aren't really listening. But does Isaiah go and speak to them anyway? Yeah, otherwise Isaiah would be like eight chapters long. That's what the rest of the book is. He goes and he speaks to them anyway, and most people don't listen. So is he a fool? No, he would be a fool not to obey God, wouldn't he? Here's another question. Do you and I have the same spirit as Isaiah that, that, that God gave Isaiah, the, or was he better than us? I was preaching just last week, y'all. We got the same Holy Spirit. We do. And that same Holy Spirit compels us to speak. Now, a lot of people aren't listening, so does that mean we should be quiet? A lot of people won't receive the word of the Lord. Does that mean that we should be quiet? You and I cannot... We're not responsible. It's not our job description to save people. It's not our job description to make them repent. It's not our job description to make them get baptized. It's not our job description to make them give to the church. There's only one thing God expects of us, and that is to tell them. And if they don't listen, that puts us in the same boat as Isaiah, and that's a great boat to be in because he is with the Lord. But God help us if we don't speak up. Let's look at our psalm today, number 138. It's on page 794 in your hymnal. Uh, sorry, 853. 
We've done this before. Hopefully it's familiar. It sounds like this. I sing your praise for steadfast love. Fulfill your purpose for me. Let's sing that together. I sing your praise for steadfast love. Fulfill your purpose for me. All right, Cody's going to lead us in that. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness. For you have exalted your name and your word above everything. On the day I called, you answered me. You strengthened my life. I sing your praise for steadfast love. Fulfill your purpose for me. All the rulers of the earth shall praise you, O Lord. They have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For the Lord is high, but regards the lowly. Yet knows the haughty from afar. I sing your praise for steadfast love. Fulfill your purpose for me. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. O Lord, fulfill your purpose for me. O Lord, make your steadfast love endure forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. I sing your praise for steadfast love. Fulfill your purpose for me. I can't remember who said it, but there is a lady who said, in order to pray thy will be done, as we do in the, old, the uh, Lord's Prayer, the implicit prayer in that is, I must deny my own will, because I am not God. So when we're talking about, when we're saying to God, thy will be done, we're saying, let your purposes be done over me. Do you all remember the Wesley Covenant prayer? I am not my own but thine. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside by thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. Y'all remember this one? That's a hard prayer to say because we're saying, Lord, if your purpose for me is that I should suffer, that I should be meek and lowly, that I should be abused, I submit. Let's do it. I want to glorify you. A lot of us say that prayer and we're not really signed on, myself being one of them, depending on the Sunday. I do not like suffering. I'm not good at it. Every time I get a cold, I think I'm going to die. I'm not a good sufferer. I don't, I don't bear it with nobility. I'm just gross. I get in bed and I say, leave me alone. I'm going to die now. I don't, I don't put on a stiff upper lip. And I need to get better at suffering. I need to resign myself. You know what? It might be the Lord's will that I should suffer. And that's what we're saying. You know, fulfill your purpose for me. A lot of people hear that with prosperity gospel glasses. They, they hear that and go, oh, God's purpose for me. 
It's to be rich and happy and healthy and live a long life and get everything I want. So, Lord, do it. That is not a biblically informed perspective. Most of the people whom God loves, who please the Lord, suffer greatly in the Bible. And the reason that they pleased him is because even when they were suffering, they said, Lord, do with me what you will. I'm a humble servant. We're about to read the New Testament reading with Paul, who worked his bottom off all his life and said, I am still but an unworthy person. That's the example of faith. And Paul suffered, did he not? He was arrested, persecuted, beat up, eventually killed for his faith. That's the model that we have. Here in this psalm, what we've been praying, we've been glorifying God. He has protected us all the way through our lives. I saw a meme this morning. I really liked it. I should have thought to put it on here. Just a guy standing on a street corner, but his shadow is going back behind him, and you see all these these, uh, arrows shooting at him, and you see an angel with a sword defending him back there, and it says, the Lord has protected me from more harm than I ever saw coming. And I think that's the reality of our lives. If it wasn't for God, all of us would already be dead. This world would not be sustainable without God intentionally sustaining us. And all the way along, there have been slings and arrows aimed at you and me that it's only because of God that we find ourselves here and now doing okay. The scandal is that we don't see ourselves having made it through this war-torn world as warriors of God. We see ourselves as civilians just kind of sailing through life. We have no idea that God is protecting us most of the time. But that's what this psalm is all about. The wicked have had it out for me. This world is a dangerous place. Lord, you've protected me all my life. And so, Lord, fulfill your purpose for me. I don't know what it is. Maybe it is that I should suffer. Maybe it is that I should thrive. Whatever your purpose is for me, let me submit to your holy will. Let's, with that in mind, let's, uh, let's move on to our New Testament reading. Who wrote 1 Corinthians? I already told you a second ago. Paul. This is an important name to know. Paul... Uh, wrote the church in Corinth, he's, he's correcting them. So he's going to be reestablishing them in some basics here. So let's pay attention to Cindy as she reads. Our third reading is from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, which you can find on page 1787 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So reminding is the purpose that he's, he's writing. He says, I'm, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. 
And there are a lot of us that don't like being reminded of things. I don't know if you've any been married before, but a great way to tick off your spouse is to be reminding them of things all the time. Uh, I heard a joke that ended with the husband saying, honey, I, I said I was going to do it, so I'll do it. Uh, it just might be a year later. You know, I, I, I ruined the punchline. It's, it's a lot funnier the way I heard it. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. You, it, we don't like being reminded of things. We, once we've heard something, we like something new. We are creatures that like novel, novelty and newness. The problem is we don't pay attention real good. And if we don't pay attention, we don't put it into action. We need getting reminded. And the faith is like the hardest thing in the world, and that means we need to be reminded all the time. You know, Martin Luther said, I need to be told the gospel every day because every day I forget. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we forget what's the most important thing all the time. We get stuck in the minutia of life. We miss the forest for the trees. We waste time. We waste energy. We waste relationships. And we often go in the wrong direction. It's because we need to get reminded. Here, he's not saying anything high-minded. He's saying, you need to remember the basic gospel, the gospel I brought to you, the gospel the other apostles brought to you. In Galatians, Galatians, he's, that's an angry letter. And he says, if anyone brings to you a gospel other than the one that I brought you, let them be accursed. The gospel is much more particular than Jesus loves you. When he talks about the gospel, he gets into the logistics of it. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And the disciples, after that, to more than 500 brothers at the same time, and then to me. He said, this is the gospel. It's a, it's a story, pretty much. The, the biblical faith is not a series of propositions. It's a story. And it does have propositions that come out of that, but it's not a worldly philosophy with principles. It is a story located in a person of Jesus Christ who is the center of the universe. Everything was made in, through, in him and through him and for him. And we're a part of that story because we are grafted into him, into the body of Christ, and made part of God's holy people, his holy family, and made worthy of his kingdom. We are the ones who have the hot burning coal of Jesus applied to our hearts, and we are purified to be like him. I'm using that coal imagery from Isaiah. Did you catch it? Remember John said, I baptize you with water, but one who is come after, uh, coming after me, who is so much better than me, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's what we see with Isaiah coming in contact with that hot coal. That's what each of us should be able to attest to. Christ's blood being atoning, atoned, uh, applied to our hearts and there to be a great burning, a great purging. It's a painful process saying goodbye to the old man and letting something new take place. And it feels good sometimes, but a lot of times Jesus says if your hand causes you to sin... You think that feels good? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I like that gouge. It makes it very visceral. It doesn't feel good. We don't do this because it feels good. We do this because we want to be good, like Jesus is good. That means there's a path of pain in front of us. That's the path that Paul walked. He said at the end of this, I worked harder than all of them. I don't think he's bragging there. He just said, I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Does he sound cocky to you there? Does he sound so full of himself? He's saying, I'm the worst of the worst. Look how awful I am. 
He's not elevating himself, but he says, because I know I'm the worst of the worst, I have worked all my life. Now, there are some people who would shame him and say, oh, Paul, you didn't have to work. The gift is free. What's wrong with you? Why would you talk about the importance of work? There are a lot of people for whom they would say, oh, we don't need to work. Work it works is, is death. Faith is what saves. And Paul would say, they're the same thing. They're the same thing. When you have God's grace, he, he, he backs off from that. He says, by, by God's grace, I am what, no, 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 no. He said, uh, I worked hard of, harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It's a both and thing. God does the bulk of the work. If anybody read the late email I sent out yesterday, I was talking about how when the Israelites showed up to the battlefield, God said, I'm going to fight for you. Even so, they showed up to the battlefield, they were armed, and they went out to fight, and God did the fighting for them. But if they didn't show up to the battlefield, God wouldn't have fought for them. And as we're going to have in the gospel reading today, whenever God, Jesus tells them to put out to sea and, and cast out the nets, that's when they caught the fish. But if they hadn't caught, uh, cast out the nets, no fish would have come. God demands that we participate in our own salvation. That's the key phrase I want you holding on to. That is a phrase from Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling is the line. God does the bulk of the work, but he requires that we cooperate with him. And that means that we work. We work. We do whatever work God has in store for us. And we work all our lives till we can't work anymore. Because we love the work. Because we love the God who gave us the work. Life is not about relaxing and doing everything we want. Life is about sacrifice and serving the Lord on every condition he sets forth. It's not a negotiation. He won. We are in a, a state of perpetual, total surrender, and we do what our Lord and Master has said. Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if. That word if, ooh, that's an important word, if. It, it implies a conditionality. You're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Well, what if I don't hold firmly to the word preached to me? What if I kind of let it go? What if I start thinking about other things, doing other things? He says, otherwise, you have believed in vain. What does vain mean when you do something in vain? It means it meant nothing. It is, it is absolutely worthless. You know, so usually we only use the word vain when we're describing a person who puts stock in their looks, right? That's because your looks don't matter at all. They don't matter at all. So you're putting stock in something that doesn't matter at all. And likewise, that's what he's saying. If you hear the word and you're changed for a time, but then you go back to your old ways, then you have believed in vain. Your, your faith is worth nothing. So should we care to hold on to the basic good news, the basic faith that's been handed down for all the centuries of the faith? Should we care about that? Absolutely. So let's final reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which you can find on page 1600 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the Word of God. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the Word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, 
put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of the fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So like Isaiah, whenever Simon Peter is in the presence of holiness, he says, this is bad for me. I got to get out of here. You got to get out of here. Please leave me, Lord. But Jesus doesn't leave. He says, follow me and I'm going to make you fish for people. And that's always a weird metaphor because we fish to eat fish, right? We go fishing. They're not going to eat people. They're going to save people. All right. It's kind of opposite ends. You're not fishing for the good of the fish when you fish. You're fishing for your good. But here he's saying, we're going to fish for the good of the people you catch. But the whole, I mean, there's, there's a message here, and one of them is sometimes God asks you to give when you feel like you've got nothing else left to give. Simon Peter and his buddies had been working all day. In fact, when he got in their boats, they were already done wishing. They were already done fishing. They were tired, and it's backbreaking work being a fisherman. These are heavy nets. You're out managing all this nautical gear. You're out with the, the sun beating down on you. If, if you've ever been on the sea, like it takes it out of you, that, that salt water. It's not fun. Actually, Sea of Gennesaret, is that, that's fresh water, isn't it? Get away from the salt water thing. That doesn't matter anyway. The main thing is, it's hard work. They're tired. And here they have this holy man get in their boat. They didn't invite him to. He gets in, he preaches, and he says, all right, let's go fishing. And you've been fishing all day, and you are tired. You want to get home to your wife and kids. We know that Simon Peter had a wife because he had a mother-in-law. He, he's got other places to be. He was not planning on this holy man showing up. But he says, you know what? We've been fishing all day. I'm tired, but fine. Let's, I'll put out the nets. And they do. And the bounty is so great that it almost does them in. It almost sinks the two, sinks the two boats. The message in that for us is, anybody else here feel tired sometimes? I was having a conversation with someone last week. And he was getting angry at me because I was telling him things that, that he didn't know. And he said, Jeffrey, I'm tired. I don't have energy for learning about all this stuff. And I said, what are you so busy doing that you're this tired? This guy's retired. He doesn't have kids. There's not much going on that I can tell. But he's tired. And when I look at most people, most people are tired. They don't have a good reason for it. I think the real reason is because our world likes us tired and Satan tires us out. And he just throws constant distraction and and anxiety at us, and it makes us tired. We have no good reason to be tired, but even so, even if we're tired, our God requires that we put some energy, all our energy, into our relationship with him. And we might be tempted to go, Jesus, I'm too tired. But if we don't do as he says, there will be no blessing for us. There will be no haul of fish, whatever metaphor you'd like to have. God requires that we push rope. That we give when we feel like we have nothing to give. That we keep going even when we feel like our legs are going to buckle underneath us. And that's a high thing to ask, but it's a much higher reward. 
And we have to have that clarity. We have to have that clarity. We have to have that faith. That's what faith is. Faith is believing that even if I spend my entire life suffering, even if everybody hates me, my life is still worth it if it's lived in Christ Jesus. But if I don't have that faith, I am not going to have it in me to live and die as Christ has called me to live and die. I will not resemble him in my life or my death. And if I die outside of Christ Jesus, my life has been vain. So let's pray for faith, huh?